Do you remember when Brian asked? Specifically, Che, I would, I would ask you if you have a chance, and maybe even during some of the journals when you're wandering, what you think of are some of the role-playing games that have really good settings, or, or which settings in role-playing games. So, I mean, you could take some of the big ones, Dungeons & Dragons, RuneQuest, have some pretty well-defined settings. Are, are there some of those that you like, uh, don't like, or, or you think are better than others? Um, I know you've talked about Traveler, so some of this may be repeating, but I, I'm looking at it more from a context of a setting, maybe even apart from a rule set, that you think would be really interesting to play or that players may be interesting to play uh, that you could use as a, as a starting point. So again, assuming you're not going to homebrew. And then I had this call from Jason. Jay, I had to pause episode eleven thirteen about four minutes in to say I do want to hear your thoughts on well-designed modern and sci-fi worlds. Please share those with us as well. And I haven't listened to the episode yet, and I don't want to cause any problems, but if Palladium Fantasy doesn't get mentioned during this episode, I'll, I'll just be a little bit heartbroken. And so today... Let's talk a little bit about modern and SF worlds and why it's so hard to recommend well-done settings for these types of games. It's Che, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Finished episode 1113, you know, some pre-made fantasy worlds. I was not disappointed. Um, you did mention Palladium Fantasy, so you're off the hook. You were never on the hook, my friend. I, I think the worlds you mentioned are all great examples. And, yeah, I, I mean, I don't really have anything to add. We can all add our personal favorites in there. I mean, Arduin is an amazing world that I, I know you appreciate. I, I realize it's higher fantasy than you typically like, but... You know, it is back in print now, which is great. But no, I think that was a great episode, and it gives people a great place to start. And I do encourage you to do an episode, you know, on modern and um, sci-fi, or at least slip them in there maybe at the end of other episodes if you don't feel they merit their whole episode. But I am truly curious on your, your thoughts on well-designed modern sci-fi worlds. So take care of yourself. Uh, let, let me put a caveat. Sci-fi, definitely, obviously, you're going to mention Traveler and, and Third Millennium and all that because it's an amazing setting. But maybe... A couple sci-fi worlds that aren't traveler just just a a um, request anyhow take care of yourself che i'm sad that we haven't gamed together for a long time but i do look forward to doing that or maybe even hopping on the internet to chat one afternoon so take care and i'll talk to you soon hello rescuers and a big thank you to jason there from the nerds rpg variety cast calling in as he so faithfully does most episodes with some comments and feedback and so this episode follows on from Choosing Fantasy Worlds, which was episode 13. Brian's question was about recommending worlds that were well done, and while I have some personal favourites which fit that description, I also want to talk about why it is actually so hard to find well done modern and SF worlds for games, because that's what I feel. 
As before, let me remind you that I've been gaming since the late 70s and back in the day we played most games in pre-designed worlds, but there is a very big difference between a world that is merely a setting for adventure and a world that is well designed to offer something a bit more. My tastes run to deep verisimilitude and simulationism and I enjoy deeply rendered characters, fairly detailed rules and, and a world worthy of exploration. Where the regular kind of game focuses on the action of the characters and uses the world as a backdrop, my desire is to present a deeply immersive sense of place within which the player characters can pursue whatever goals they want. Thus, a world for me needs to be a sandbox within which the players can do whatever it is they want to do. While I have a strong sense of narrative, my approach is to create situations and not plots. I want an open world environment. And so we begin with this. The modern world is the richest world imaginable, and SF games tend to encourage GMs to world build for themselves. This is Season 11, Episode 15, Choosing Modern and SF Worlds. Modern role-playing tends to be genre-focused, and the most common genres are probably the spy game, horror, conspiracy, and military action scenarios. The longest-running modern game I've played in was run by my wife, Deb, and was fueled by her interest in Fortiana, the damned data which the scientific community refuses to acknowledge. She blended conspiracy, techno-horror, and the paranormal into a compelling game which kept our group entranced for many months. In one sense, the modern world is the most well-done setting there is. It's an easy thing to imagine a small twist to the real experience of the world we are living in and run a game from there. Players can access the world with ease. After all, we all live in it daily. And whatever twists and details you overlay are going to be the primary source of enjoyment. That means you don't really need a modern source book for your game, except perhaps for things like gear and weapons or ideas for challenges. Your sourcebook is the internet and your own experience is going to provide loads of inspiration. When it comes to the science fiction genre, or more precisely genres, because SF is a very broad umbrella, many games encourage the GM to create their own science fiction milieu. I think of how 1977's Traveller provided the tools to run an SF adventure game but was deliberately lacking in specific setting details. The belief was that GMs would want to build their own, and it was important to allow the broad range of SF styles to be played. While successful, Traveller really took off when the universe of Chartered Space, also known as the official Traveller universe or the Third Imperium, when that began publication from around about, I don't know, 1981. We still see this trend towards generic build-your-own-universes today. Kevin Crawford's Stars Without Number is a sandbox toolkit for GMs, for example. At the other extreme, we have the preponderance of modern and SF games based upon novel, TV and movie franchises. Star Trek, Buffy, Supernatural, Star Wars, James Bond, Firefly, well, you name it really, there's probably a game based on it somewhere. The problem is that these kinds of worlds are generally vehicles for gathering the lore from the movies and the shows and the novels that inspired them, but they may not either be very well done or, even if they are well done, they might not be very coherent as gaming worlds. You also tend to need to learn a new game rule set to play them, or at least convert them to your favourite game engine. 
Recent years have seen the rise of Modifius and Free Elegan, amongst others, companies who have won multiple licenses and given them all a similar game system, which sort of offsets that problem of learning new games to some degree. But still, licensed modern and SF worlds are generally a thing all of their own. And with the exception of Star Trek, I tend towards ignoring them in recent times. So where are the well-done modern and SF worlds? In my view, while many are very interesting, few are well done. They tend to be either too prescriptive or too general in feel. My favourites are the worlds that have been designed to walk the line between those extremes, or at the very least to provide something not quite expected. The alternative role-playing game was released just prior to the release of D&D 3rd Edition, back in the late 1990s. Looking back on it, some might say it was a prototype for some of the changes that were to come, but for me, it was one of the most successful and best SF games I've ever played. Detailed, flexible and extremely enjoyable to run. Alternity came with the rather pedestrian Star Drive universe, but soon gave birth to the Dark Matter modern world that I think is one of the best source books I've ever used. This became the foundation for my personally longest running and most enjoyable campaign ever. Dark Matter was set in the late 1990s and featured a conspiracy which linked together every paranormal, fringe science and supernatural story you've ever heard into a huge proposal of a setting. What made it so well done was the idea that everything was simply a suggestion, that the GM would ultimately decide the truth, but that answers to questions about the world were made, and all of them were very interesting. Supporting sourcebooks for Alternity were made to slot into this framework, allowing for anything, including but not limited to, psionics, magic, demonology, aliens, paranormal experiences, and the supernatural. Dark Matter gave players membership in the Hoffman Institute, a not-for-profit secretive organisation which blended a sort of men-in-black investigator with paranormal researcher to form small field cells looking into strangeness. The iconic scenarios provided, including the Killing Jar, are some of the most memorable games I've ever run. I return to the introductory Exit 23 scenario frequently. It is simply a brilliant collection of modern inspiration. Sadly, it's out of print and Wizards ruined its reputation with a bastardised D20 system version in the noughties. I would run Dark Matter tomorrow if I could find the players. I might even use Alternity, although I feel I'd probably opt for GURPS or something a bit more modern nowadays as a rules engine. As a modern setting, Dark Matter stands out from many, many others as something simply very different. I've not played that much Numenera by Montecook Games, but it's a very well done product line. It's a science fantasy really, set in the furthest future on the ninth world. Numenera blends technology and weirdness into a delicious melange that proves to be a strong sandbox powered by the cipher system. What I love is that while there is lore for Numenera, many, many pages of stuff that you can read through and digest and, you know, really dig into, it's all pretty much optional. There's a sense of coherency that arises from not being very specific. The way that vaguely outlining stuff gives space for the GM and players to fill in the blanks. It's a sandbox of sorts as players quest for lost trinkets of the deep past and seek to explore the world. The focus is discovery and I think this is why it presses so many of my buttons. 
Numenera benefits from top-notch art direction and imagery. The cipher decks and creature cards offer the GM endless variations to create cool one-shot powers for players to enjoy against interesting and strange opposition. It's also factional and draws on the idea of characters having a story arc to give campaigns a bit of longevity. Overall, the impression is of a tool set that is also original and engaging. Numenera is a great world powered by a solid and simple rule set, and I would love to play more of it. I think the thing with Numenera is that over time, obviously, it's grown. And sometimes I wonder whether just sticking with the core book and then winging it yourself from there would be the best way of approaching it. But you can't really complain. Monty Cook Games put together a beautiful setting, a beautiful book, and yeah, constantly provide wonderful, wonderful inspiration for games. The world that I love greatly but have never really played within is Mage the Ascension. Now it's in its Mage 20 edition, this game being part of the World of Darkness, the uber setting created by White Wolf in the 1990s. Um, while I don't think it's as well done as it might be, and I'm not really a fan of the D10-based storyteller rule system, the World of Mage fascinated me when I read it. Mage postulates that reality is fundamentally malleable. There is a consensus of belief that makes the modern world the way it is. The true magic of the world is that belief makes things real. For me, as a burgeoning adult at the time when I first read it, this rang true and drew me into the game world. What I enjoy is the philosophical dialogue Mage presents to the GM and players. This is a game about big, ultimate questions. What is reality? What does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of the world? What does it mean to be self-aware? Factions and politics run through the world as well. It's perhaps the only game world I enjoy for its politics and intra-faction complexity. It's not really about magic and casting spells in the traditional sense. Rather, Mage is about subtlety and twisting reality just ever so slightly to get what you want. I've never really got it to the table because my friends are far too action-orientated and also down-to-earth to really get it. You need to play Mage with a spirit of openness that many folks simply don't have. Because the game is so philosophical, players who are simply out to blast off vulgar magic, fireballs and such, will both suffer the backlash of paradox and ruin the tone. This isn't a world that's well done in the sense of having a well-constructed gazetteer or detailed outline of places in a book. It's well done in the sense of being narratively interesting and different. It's a grown-up kind of fantasy about the real world, and I loved it from the moment that I opened the book. Obviously, I've just briefly outlined some of my favourite well-done worlds, but there are dozens of others we could talk about. I mean, we could start with Call of Cthulhu as an entire range, especially London by Gaslight. GURPS World War II, what a phenomenal range of books that is, and I would so love to bring that to the table. Cyberpunk 2020 that hit me like a brick in the face with exciting 1980s vibes, probably around about early 1990s. There were Star Frontiers, which we played in the early to mid-1980s, and I absolutely loved, especially Crash on Volturnus. Delta Green, which takes Cthulhu into the modern world and really darkens it. Rifts, oh my goodness, how many Rifts books do I own? The multiversal, universal game by Palladium, 
which whilst a mess of a game system in lots of different ways is just such a fascinating world and now available in Savage Worlds edition so you should check that one out for sure I mean the list is endless it's long I could I don't know I could list games dozens and dozens and dozens of games that I've played in great game worlds but the big distinction is the question of the GM running one of three types of modern or SF worlds. I mean, are you running an official publication from someone's novel, TV or movie adaptation? Or would you prefer an open do-it-yourself toolkit? Or are you looking for an original modern or SF world designed for role-playing like those I've been speaking about today? Each of those has its upsides and downsides, so you need to choose really wisely. In the end, I think the problem with the modern world is that most players are trying to escape it. And the problem with SF is that it's hard for players to know what to expect, well, unless you offer them something well-known like a franchise. The result tends to be short-lived games, unless you can find just the right group of like-minded players who are willing to go along with whatever creation you put before them. Anyway, for now, that's it on that. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. As you know, I love to hear from you. So if you've got a question or comment, then please hop over to speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue where you can leave a 90-second message. I've got a couple of more messages from Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, which we'll share in a moment. And then after that, I'm going to come back with a little bit of news. Well, really about the school club. Stay tuned. Cool, Shay. I just started episode 1114 and... You're claiming to have fallen through the cracks because you like more complex games. I don't know if you can get more complex than AD&D First Edition, to be honest. When, when you really look at that rule set, it's pretty darn crunchy. Um, lots of granularity, lots of exceptions, exception-based rules spread across multiple books. You have to flip and turn. This rule's in the Monster Manual. No, this one's in the DMG. Wait, this one's hidden in the Player's Guide. Wait, how much capacity does that pouch have? Here, let me pull out the player record sheet and look in the the inside cover. <laughs> um, that's just disorganization, not complexity. But AD&D is a pretty darn complex game with a lot of subsystems. You know, a lot of monsters have exceptions built into them and things like that. So I, I think it's about as complex a game as many of them. I mean, there's not like super duper complex math in it, but I, I would say it's much more complex a game than say GURPS. But okay. Now I just paused your episode like a, it. your theme song just started. So I just felt like calling that in to say, don't, don't, don't put your, I, I get not identifying with the OSR. I don't overly identify with the OSR. I like old school games, not so much old school D&D, although I have a fondness for AD&D first edition, which is unhealthy, but I, I am looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So tuning in now. H.A. Jason just finished 1114. Yeah, I agree with you. The labels are not helpful. Because going by Matt Finch's guide, for the most part, you are very definitely playing in an old school style. And I've heard many, many, many people identify as old school, say it's the game, the style of gameplay, not the rules. So definitely there are many old school people that are not old school people. I don't know. Like you say, the definitions are pretty useless. <laughs> there are many people in the OSR that would agree that you are OSR and you're fine. It doesn't matter what rules you make any rule. You can play any rules in that style. And there are other people like me that tend to define it as Gygaxian D&D. Uh, which is funny because I prefer other games to Gygaxi and D&D. Like I say, other than my unhealthy love of AD&D First Edition, which AD&D First Edition, you know, played rules as written, kind of does, it gives you very granularity, gives you a, a solid worldview. It gives you solid things to do for each thing. 
and it kind of goes against some of these principles, but they can't deny it or Osric is part of the OSR because it was right there at the beginning, right? So I think that's a problem for a lot of people to identify the OSR because AD&D First Edition doesn't do what they want, but they can't, you, you know, deny it. Um, I don't know. I, I agree. The definitions are pretty useless, and that's always been the problem with OSR is it's pretty meaningless because nobody agrees on it. So let's get rid of definitions, just play games we like with people we like. So take care, my friend. You know, it's funny in many ways, Jason, that you make a point about AD&D first edition that is actually one of the reasons why i was always confused as to why the osr community over time went increasingly towards light rules but of course the reality is that probably fewer people play ad and d first edition than the earlier stuff um i commented in my episode that second edition gets forgotten almost completely but actually you know most of these guys i think are playing beck me bx uh, or they're going even further back you know and that's all cool but it's interesting to me that the most talked about and the most kind of referenced edition of D&D is a basic expert from 1981. So, yeah, I'm not entirely sure I get it. And that's kind of the point. I'm uncomfortably old school. All right. For those of you who don't know, I've got a new job. So back in February, I resigned from my position as a high school RE teacher because basically I would rather have been unemployed than work that school any longer. It was a pretty oppressive place to be. And actually, by the end of July, I had found a new role as a head of RE in a new school not too far from where I live. And now that I've started working at a new school, I've decided to open a new school D&D club, which starts on Wednesday, the 2nd of November. A colleague will be running D&D 5e, and so, given the one-hour session slot time that we have, which is extremely limited, I will be running something, well, old school. I want to go for something that's fast and high-paced and really simple for the kids to grasp so that we can get through a bit more in an hour session. So options include running either BX from 1981 or, more likely, Basic Fantasy from 2006. The latter, I think, because it's a bit closer procedurally to 5e, but also free to download. That means students can access it very easily. I'm also contemplating running a Mega Dungeon over the year, so right now I'm scoping out Greg Gillespie's Dwarrow Deep, the Dwarven Mega Dungeon, but I've got a little bit of time to make plans and nothing's nailed down just yet. Why am I telling you this? Well, firstly, because I believe in teaching teenagers how to play D&D and other role-playing games. And I think it's also good to expose them to alternatives to both 5th edition and modern styles of play. Opening up the roots of the hobby to new folk is always, for me, a good thing. And I basically like to call that out. But also, I want to make a public thank you really, to the patrons of Roleplay Rescue, whose funds help me to provide copies of games to the students. You may not know this, but I'm purchasing two D&D 5e starter sets, a player's handbook, a monster manual, and then a dozen or so sets of polyhedral dice, so that new players get given a set of dice. I think that's massively important. And then I'm also funding copies of whichever game systems I showcase as well. Thus, I will give away basic fantasy if I run with that system, for example. The 40 or so patrons make this possible, so I'd like to show them a bit of gratitude. Thank you, guys. You really do make it possible for me to do more than just record my thoughts. Actually, it's worth saying that my colleague who's going to work alongside me in this group was mightily impressed that I can not only bring along my games to play, but also fund giving students the materials they need to play independently of our club. 
It's great stuff. Thank you. Game on. So that's it for another week. Big thanks for listening and I hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks to Brian from I'll Have to Look That Up for the original call-in that inspired now two episodes. And thanks also to Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast for the call-ins today. Thanks also to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue and to John from Tale of the Manticore for the show music. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again on the flip side. Game on.